yes, this is Ponder, and Ronnie and I have come to the Sainsbury Gallery at London's Victoria and Albert Museum to see a fascinating exhibition called The Future Starts Here. It brings together more than 100 objects. Most of them are brand new or under development, which point the way to where society might be heading. Yeah, the exhibition asks a few interesting questions. For example, what makes us human? Are we connected but lonely? Does democracy still work? Are cities for everyone? And then it goes on to look at the future of the planet and also the afterlife in the sense that a lot of technology today is being developed to prolong human life and to see if our minds can even outlive our bodies and be accessed by some artificial intelligence in the future. There's a lot of objects on display and with each of them they're guided by ethical and speculative questions. There's a lovely quote at the beginning of the exhibition. It says, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. So the first section we've come into is called We Are All Connected, But Do We Feel Lonely? We're surrounded by an array of objects which are all, to some degree, designed to improve the quality of life and aid communication. The first thing that I was drawn to was just two photographs, actually, of a couple in bed on their phones, a scene that many people might relate to and not interacting. And then it shows a baby and some technology used with regard to the baby's state and being aware of how it is. But it's asking some interesting questions because this technology is meant to make our lives better, but at the same time it's disconnecting us to the point where the baby's first interaction with the world is not his mother, but rather technology that's designed to alert the mother. Yeah, and there's also a cute robotic seal designed to comfort and calm. So one thinks of all the ways that a child could be comforted and calmed. Here's a cuddly seal. Well, not so cuddly, it's full of technology. <laughs> so we're walking over to um, ready-to-drink meals. In this case, it's the Soylent Drink, a new product on the market that's designed to replace all of your meals with a completely oh, neutral... Not all of them. Okay. So basically, it's this one whole thing of this is 20% of your daily nutrition. And the idea is that currently and in the near future, people might find it difficult to get their full nutrients that they need. And so this will help along the way. That's 20% of your nutrients. So if you drank five bottles of that day, you'd never have to eat or drink anything else. Theoretically, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so we spend our whole life drinking what tastes like chocolate milk, I think. I'm sure you can get a different flavour. Maybe vanilla. <laughs> It'd be nice to have like garlic or... Garlic flavour. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, kettle chips or something. I could do with kettle chips. <laughs> but what would happen to our muscles of mastication if we didn't have anything to chew? Uh, I think they would decay on. Like, not being in use, they would weaken. But again, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. So we'll be very nutritionally very healthy, but yeah. no muscles in our faces. We'll just be sagging, like our cheeks and our jaws will just be sagging. There is a drive to farm and produce insects as nutrition because of the protein element and you know how agriculture is so demanding and with the growth in the population. So maybe you'll see this supplement in conjunction with, say, like a, a protein bar made from insects. I mean, I wouldn't eat it myself, but in the next 50 years or something, it might be the most um, logical kind of... We're off to lunch. <laughs> so speaking of Soylent and this drink that's meant to replace our meals, we're now coming over to a stand which talks about 
how advertising is targeted. When I've been on Facebook recently, I've been getting a lot of adverts for this Soylent drink, maybe because I've chosen a vegan lifestyle. So I wonder how much of this drink actually is down to the marketing as opposed to the actual product. Yes, this is quite an extraordinary display, really, about how our whole way of voting, our way of funding change in society, our way of thinking about society is being dictated to by the developments in technology. So there's material here about crowdsourcing. There's a really fascinating model of a major bridge project in Rotterdam which was entirely funded by the citizens themselves and didn't go through the usual rigmarole of town planning and each of the names of the citizens that have contributed to that bridge are carved into the slats of the bridge itself. But perhaps most interestingly there's a display here about Cambridge Analytica and how they were analysing the data of potential voters in the US presidential campaign and it's extraordinary the level of detail to which a person's interests, a person's habits, a person's shopping interests or can be drilled into and everything about them can be known and everything can be targeted directly to them. Yes, I think one interesting observation that we felt was relevant was how they, they lord the ability to only give you what you're interested in in some way that takes away the capacity to investigate truth and also to actually discover new things. If all you're fed is what you already like, how do you move beyond that boundary and discover new things? One of the things I thought was very interesting about what he was saying is that actually the idea of mass market advertising is going to be a thing of the past. The idea of actually seeing a TV commercial for a product which is pitched at everyone is really going to be alien within a decade or two and everybody's advertising will be served up personally to them based on their habits and their tastes and what they've bought in the past. Mr. Cove, I'm sorry, but we have a problem. There are unexpected traffic delays due to a burst of automobile. I don't think we'll make it to the airport. Would you mind if I include you public transport? The timing is a bit tight. So now we're trying to get a glimpse of what public transport or even private transport might be like in the future. We're sitting in a prototype of a driverless car. It's a very spacious cabin and we have a full screen computer in front of us which is responding to our needs wherever we want to go and how the best way would be to get there. How do you feel about this, Ronnie? I think seeing a family, a simulation of a family talking to the driverless computer seems a bit bizarre because the family's not talking to each other. So I just wonder, yeah, have they thought about these, these aspects of social interaction with driverless automated computers? Also, I was just thinking, you go past a landmark, you ask the computer what it is, and it gives you a whole display in front of you on a screen. So instead of actually looking at the landmark... <laughs> You're looking at all the facts and figures and history of the item, which is good. It can act as a bonus to enjoying a place, but I find with a sat-nav even, I don't take in where I am. I'm just following the instructions without really registering the landmarks and engaging with the road and the sites around me. It's pretty much the opposite of mindfulness. I think this wouldn't work in a forest because obviously you can simulate trees with a screen, so it's probably more for urban urban landscapes, I'd say. But, yeah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm just scared where we're going to park. It says you can pull over anytime you want and get out and look at something, but where are all these huge, great electronic vehicles going to park? And how are they going to park? 
And who's going to pay the insurance when they crash? And do they take Apple Pay? Six questions. <laughs> so we walk over to um, a model of a three-faith house of worship, which is being proposed to be built in Berlin, of all places. And uh, the idea is that there'll be a church, mosque, and a synagogue in this house of one that aims to reflect the growing religious diversity in Berlin. And it's been proposed to be a space for everyone to come together in respectful dialogue under one roof. But it wasn't clear if the three houses of worship are actually connected to each other into one unified building, or actually they're three separate spaces that aren't actually connected. Uh, what did you think about it, Rob? It's a very imposing building, um, very grand in its design. But it looks to me that people would come in and actually continue to practice their own forms of worship under its roof, not necessarily mixing it up. So at one level, it's a very noble project. At another, well, if you only limit your house of worship to three faiths, what happens to all the others? Where do they go and worship? So really, it should be called the house of three. So one of the major developments that have happened in recent years is the whole area of crowdfunding. And there's a display here which talks about how Kickstarter has significantly altered the way people are funding technology, product design, journalism, film, exhibitions, video games. Since its launch in 2009, around 40 million people have backed projects, pledging $3.5 billion. So in this cabinet here, we see a number of projects that Kickstarter campaigns have funded, including bowls that are sand cast from Kuwait or a radiation detection kit. It's really sort of democratization of everything, isn't it? The technology is enabling people now. Whereas in the past, if you had an idea, it could take decades to get something into production. You had to get a patent. You had to get the funding. You had to get a big multinational corporation behind your idea. Same with publishing. Same with the music industry, the film industry. The technology has enabled everybody now, if they've got the, the mind to do it, to actually have an idea, generate a project, raise the money and get it out there to the whole world. And it's, it's a very empowering thing, potentially. Yeah, I mean, Kickstarter even builds a narrative into the whole process. So typically, big companies like Apple or Nike, you'd go on their website and you read the narrative retrospectively. But with Kickstarter, you're part of the narrative. As things update, new things are unlocked. The inventors announce new features to their products as more money comes in. And if it doesn't come in, they don't necessarily release those features. So everyone's part of that journey. It's almost a movement with each product. So who wants to live forever? Do you want to live forever? Uh, um, spiritually, not physically. So this last room in the exhibit looks at the advances in biotechnology and artificial intelligence, which could radically extend our lifespans. The idea of being frozen, for example, at the point of death and then being woken up in some future world when they can cure your fatal illness or the expectation that the future world is going to be so much better that you're going to be frozen and you're going to arrive there several hundred or thousand years in the future. So there's a whole display here of the freezing materials required should you wish to be frozen in cryopreservation. And uh, I was just reading here about Dr. Anders Sandberg who signed up to have his head frozen um, confident that if he does wake up it will be in a better world, reasoning that if humanity descends into chaos the project's likely to be abandoned anyway but it's one thing to have your whole body frozen with the chance of waking it up I wonder if it's ever going to be possible to just wake someone's head up 
Dr. Sandberg may be in for a shock when he realizes he's just a head in a jar <laughs> for the next thousand years. And he's not going to have much of a grip on the world if he's limited without a body to move around in, I think. But yeah, the process of uh, life and death being a cycle and just us moving from this world to the next is, I guess, an inherently spiritual idea that exists in all faiths. However, in this exhibit, it's been reduced to a very material uh, experience. So they've got a toolkit for cryopreservation. The notion is that at the moment of death, some, your loved one would have to basically undertake this grisly task of using everything from um, a basic CPR kit, an ice cooler, stopwatch, safety glasses, a thermometer to gauge brain temperature, and waterproof gloves, and a cardiac injection kit, including syringes and heparin. Heparin, for those that know, is an anticoagulant. So all these things would have to happen at the moment of death if you happen to die outside of the Cryonics Institute. I'm not quite sure that's the way I'd like to go, personally. Um, but I can't help thinking of Austin Powers when I see these great chambers. <laughs> Are we so much a product of our age that we'll be woken up in 100, 200, 500 years' time and expect to see Love Island still on the television? Gosh. So um, we've come to a part of the ex exhibition called The Doomsday Vault for the World Seeds. So this is uh, talking about the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is deep in an icy mountain in Norway. And it has almost a million packets of the world seeds for preservation should there, there be some kind of disaster um, and we lose all of our flora. It's, it's interesting, but I'm not sure how you'd be able to revive them if the whole world's climate had uh, you know, moved to a place where it wasn't able to revive them naturally. But it's an interesting idea. I think we're so fixated. This exhibition is just reminding me that we're so fixated on preservation. We're not fixated about living for the now and, and thinking how living for the now affects the future. So it's more about thinking about the end of things rather than the process to get to the end. It's also assuming that we're on a kind of trajectory towards a certain kind of future. Either things aren't going to change significantly, like our cities fundamentally are going to be the same, and therefore the driverless cars and that kind of technology just fits naturally into uh, an existing city kind of structure. Yeah. Or it's assuming a kind of post-apocalyptic future where you know, we're going to need these million packets of seeds that are currently being frozen in a glacier in Norway exactly. uh, in order to uh, plant some food again one day. And, of course, none of us can predict the future, but it's interesting that people are really seriously thinking about how the technology that we're developing today can extend into the future. Whether any of those objects or items in this exhibition ever see the light of day or are ever actually needed by humanity is another question. It's true, a lot of the, um, a lot of the exhibits also are treating the symptoms of society rather than the causes. It's almost like living in a dystopian city where the solution to your problems are better locks on your doors and more advanced locks rather than treating the causes of, of crime and disunity. Yeah, I noticed a high security school building over there and I just thought uh, it says, you know, it, pro it preserves how important education is by putting the children in a safe environment. But it's basically high-walled security. <laughs> it looks like a prison. So it's not looking at training the children to become citizens where they wouldn't need a building like that. It's just basically creating a building that will protect them from the, the dangers of the outside world. But I'm reminded, actually, back in 1982... It's when you used to watch Tomorrow's World. When I used to watch Tomorrow's World with... Raymond Baxter and Michael <laughs> Rod. Um, in 1982, I and a school friend entered a competition in the Daily Express to design the house of the year 2000. And I think for anyone who was born in the years 
or the decades leading up to the year 2000, it was such a landmark, the year 2000. It was like the stuff of science fiction. And the Daily Express ran this competition called Design the House of the Year 2000. It was only 1982, so we thought to ourselves, it's only 18 years away. And then we thought, well, how have houses changed in the last 18 years since um, 1964? And um, we realized, actually, that most of us live in houses which are identical to the ones our grandparents lived in or our great-grandparents. Most of the houses we live in are 1920s or 30s or 40s or 50s. So actually the fundamental way we live doesn't change dramatically. What does change is little bits of technology that come into our homes. Um, so I remember in 1982 predicting flat screen televisions, <laughs> predicting good. remote control curtains. Not that anyone <laughs> even has those even today predicting that there would be more than four TV channels because we'd only just got Channel 4 in those days. And uh, this exhibition reminds me of that. It's sort of sensing that the future will look very, very different, but I wonder just how different it will look. Will, will it be more or less the same, but there'll be a few items of technology that will just change or enhance our lives in different ways. It's very true, like our house built in 1901, we've got Alexa downstairs, it can't communicate with Alexa upstairs, it's just a first world problem. <laughs> I'd get a new Alexa if I were you. I'd get better Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, one thing that's interesting about this next exhibit is it's called a galactic coffee break. Lots of us love that familiar taste of roasted coffee beans in our espresso, and we're familiar with Lavazza. Well, Lavazza has made the ISS Espresso for the International Space Station, and this espresso... Um, really makes us realize that some things as far advanced as our technology becomes we still things that are ancient appeal to us like the smell of a good coffee and how important that is for space exploration isn't that doesn't that say something about other things that we like in life like or a sam <laughs> <laughs> or even a good book or more importantly a, a spiritual framework some things just don't change and whilst little things as rob was saying with his his house that he designed do might change um, I think things like coffee may be here for a lot longer than the next 10 years. As long as the coffee beans are preserved in that glacier in Norway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As long as they're, the, yeah. But this is the first espresso machine designed to be used in space. And uh, actually, I've never used an espresso machine. I can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never used an espresso machine in planet Earth, let alone in space. So I'll have to, uh, there's obviously some big gaps in my education here and my experience. And here we have a display of small objects that look like plastic nuts and bolts and little pieces of car parts and so forth. These objects are actually made with the world's first zero-gravity 3D printer used on board the International Space Station in 2014. So the idea was that these 3D printers could manufacture tools or spare parts in space using uh, 3D printing rather than having to wait for parts to be shipped up from planet Earth. So it's really quite extraordinary. You know, my dentist has a 3D printer in his oh, surgery now. So, so he actually does a digital analysis of your tooth, sculpts it on the screen, and then he can print it there and then and install it there and then without having to be sent off to a lab to be made. So it's amazing because there's also a, a little model of 3D printed Martian homes and how to minimize materials being sent to Mars by just putting a 3D printer there and sending the blueprints over. As you know, in history, much of the technology that's, that we use on Earth was first created for space and then applied here. So I do wonder about the applications of that after a disaster, for example, quickly get erecting homes up um, from 3D printers. It's certainly useful for that, I think. 
We can also make little action figures of ourselves to put on Mars. Yeah, just to boost our ego further. <laughs> so if you fancy a good couple of hours pondering the future, highly recommend the exhibition. The future starts here at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Runs until the 4th of November. Leave enough time to really look around and read the, uh, the captions because they really ask some interesting questions. And maybe take a, take a camera, fully charged, and uh, take some pictures because you're allowed to do so. Tagging, hashtag... The future starts here.